listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Joey. Good to spend this, uh, you know, this week between Christmas and New Year's. Normally, it's it's known across the world as International Let the Youth Pastor Speak Day. Um, <laughs> But we promoted our youth pastor to grow pastor, and so the former youth pastor is getting a chance to, to preach this morning. You know, one of the things I love about uh, travel is experiencing how things are done differently in different places. When we were in the UK for a month during our sabbatical a few years back, at the very beginning of it, we were getting over jet lag, and I was waking up early. Uh, you know, three in the morning, four in the morning, that kind of thing. And, and one morning I wandered out of the apartments around six o'clock and I was hoping to find a coffee shop uh, where I could get something hot and caffeinated because uh, I'd already been up for four hours and <laughs> I needed something. And I couldn't find a single coffee shop that opened before 9 a.m. So you had the same reaction I did. It's ludicrous. Uh, don't people understand... That the point of coffee is to get a cup on your way to work to wake you up in the morning and give you the fuel that you need to face your day, right? If you all agree with me. And so, of course, any good coffee shop must be open by at least 6 o'clock in the morning. Because that's, thank you, that's when we're all getting up and getting moving and getting ready to, you know, carpe diem and seize the day and all that, right? Well, apparently not so in the UK. Apparently, in the United Kingdom, coffee is not considered fuel. And people aren't, by and large, lined up at the coffee shop like we line up our cars at the gas station uh, to get their morning hit. They're not getting up at 5 a.m. in order to seize the day. And if I expect that people in other countries live with the same assumptions about life that I do, I'm the one who's going to be disappointed and misinterpret the situation and end up frustrated and asleep by 8 a.m. Right? In foreign countries, they do things a little bit differently. Uh, in the mid-1950s or so, there was a British novelist named L.P. Hartley who started out one of his books with this line, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. So the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And so I'm reminded of the coffee experience and many other travel experiences that I've had as I read through this passage that Pastor Jeff just read for us. Uh, because, uh, like, assuming that coffee shops should be open by 6 a.m. at the latest, uh, we assume things to be true about the way other people live their lives. We assume some things to be true about this story uh, that maybe aren't quite so accurate. And of course, the things we assume to be true usually say more about us than they do about the story that we're reading. Uh, the past is a foreign country. They, they do things differently there. And so this story, I've chosen this story for this one-week break in between Advent and New Year's, uh, because a, a number of us who are going through life-to-life uh, -life training, that evangelism training groups that, that we're in, uh, this story forms a basis of some of that training. And, and so I've chosen this passage because we easily tend to read this passage as a confrontation between Jesus and a woman defined by her sin. Jesus is confronting her sin and she's dodging his confrontations. Amen. Except this conversation might be better read 
as a dialogue between Jesus and a woman who is bent and broken by her suffering, in which Jesus actually sees her and offers her life. This is one of the most profound stories of Jesus piercing through a haze of misunderstanding and talking past each other, penetrating through the armor of ethnic and racial barriers and and seeing and speaking directly into the heart of a broken woman who's standing across a well at noon someday in Samaria. Because, like every other story, when, when Jesus looks at a person, he... He sees them. Amen. Jesus looks at you, he sees you. Let's jump into the story. I'll show you what I mean. So in this passage, uh, John chapter 4, I mean the whole passage is chapter 1 all the way through verse uh, 42 or so, 43. uh, But we're only looking at a part of it. In this passage, we find Jesus wearied from a journey about four days or four hours walk already in a three-day journey. He's sitting at the side of Jacob's well. Uh, near a town called Sychar in a region north of Jerusalem called Samaria. That well, by the way, is still there. You can still visit it today. You can even go in and draw water from the well if you want to. Uh, One of our our students was texting me yesterday saying, hey, I did that. I went to this place and and drew water out of the well. He says, don't do what I did, though. He said, I was cranking the bucket up and I lost control of the crank and it started spinning back down and the rope jumped off the pulley and they had to leave while the attendants tried to fix the well. So if you don't want to get on Jesus' backside, or let me put it a different way. Kids, if you ever visit Israel, try not to desecrate a religious site, okay? It's not a good idea. Anyway, it's, it's about noon. It's the sixth hour this day. It's just a random day. Jesus is walking through. He's on his way back to Galilee. He's tired from the walking already. The disciples have gone off into the town. It's about a half mile away. They've gone into the town to buy food. Jesus is resting at the side of the well when a woman from town shows up to get water. Absolutely vital. We often don't reckon how vital water really is since it's you know, potable water is pumped into our, our houses. But I mean, they have to go get water daily, multiple times a day, depending on the day's work. And this woman found herself in need of water around noon. So she grabs her bucket and heads to the well, not knowing that she's about to encounter someone who's going to change her life forever. Amen. Amen. Because Jesus is there and he's thirsty. So as he sees the woman arrive with her bucket, and as she attaches it to the communal rope at the well and begins to lower it to the bottom, and as she fills the bucket and begins to haul the weight of it, of that water, the hundred feet or so back to the top, Jesus just says, hey, when you're done, do you mind if I have a drink? It's a simple question. He has a simple need. And she is immediately surprised. Immediately surprised that he would say anything. There was no way she was going to start a conversation with him. Just looking at him, she can tell that he's a Jew. He dresses Jewish. And and Jews don't talk with Samaritans. Jews barely talk with women. Some of the rabbis of the time were pretty blunt about it. They said, your home should be open to anyone in need. Just don't spend too much of that time talking with women. Because men who talk with women are neglecting the time they could be spending studying scripture, which means they're probably going to end up in hell. Literally what the rabbis taught. Plus, in this situation, Jesus doesn't have his own cup or his own water bucket. And, you know, is he really going to use hers? 
Jews categorically refuse to use any utensils that belong to Samaritans. They're defiled, they're unclean, and to use one would make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. So she responds in, in surprise. Well, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman from Samaria, a Samaritan woman? And I hope you can catch her a subtle antagonism. Jews look down on Samaritans. Jewish men look down on Samaritan women even more. But this, this doesn't mean the Samaritans just rolled over and, and took it. She's not saying, woe is me. I know I'm unclean. I'm not worthy for you to ask me of a favor. She's saying, dude, you're a Jewish guy and I'm a Samaritan woman. You're really going to ask me for a favor? Like, really? Which is why Jesus responds the way he does. Look at in verse 10. He says, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, Amen. and you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Amen. See, in other words, Jesus is saying, okay, yes, I understand. I'm asking you for a free gift of water, something you just worked for and you worked hard to get it. I'm crossing some racial and ethnic boundaries here. But if you had any idea of who I am and you understood how God gives gifts that are free of charge, you would be asking me for a free gift and I would be giving you living water. Now, of course, we, we know Jesus. We, we've read how he interacts with people. So we know the attitude, the manner with which he utters these words. He's not being condescending. He's not being paternalistic. He's not talking down to her. He's pulling back the curtain a little so she knows she's not talking to just another ordinary Jewish guy traveling through, looking for a, a free handout on his way through the unclean territory. But she's not interested. Because to her, it sounds like Jesus is saying, somewhat condescendingly, you don't understand. I'm a rabbi. but in a kind of convoluted and, and arrogant way. Because his words to her ears sound like he's poking at the, the huge and long and historic and painful disagreements between Jews and Samaritans. Now, both Jews and Samaritans trace their history back to the same Abraham and Isaac and jo Jacob that we read about in the first five books of the Bible, the five books that Moses wrote. But the two people groups split off about 700 years before this when the, the northern half of the whole kingdom of Israel was invaded by Assyrians. They took over the whole thing. They brought in just a ton of people from outside of Israel, settled them in the land. And of course, that led to not just intermarriage, but a kind of a religious syncretism of, well, we have Yahweh and also all these other gods from other nations and we kind of try to figure out how the whole thing works together. Which means Jews then looking north see in these lost brothers and sisters um, half-breeds, a, a mongrel race. People who aren't ethnically purely Jewish. So there's the division over blood, but the rift runs even deeper because when it comes to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the books... Uh, the, of the Hebrew scriptures, the Samaritans only counted the first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I almost said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the ones Moses wrote. Those are the only books that count. Everything that comes after it is just Jewish stories. 
And in their translation of it, the mountain where God chose to be worshipped, commanded that he be worshipped, is not Mount Zion, it's not Jerusalem, it's Mount Gerizim, which she can point at in the distance. That's what the Bible really says. See, nothing that comes after Deuteronomy holds any authority. So who cares if God says in Samuel or Chronicles or Kings that he's chosen Jerusalem as his home? That's, that's a, just a Jewish story. Samaritans even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. But 150 years before this, a Jewish nationalist leading a band of rebels showed up and attempted to purify the Samaritans and destroyed it. Their relationship is not great, in other words. These two nations, they've been at war with each other in one form or another for a long time. So when Jesus says to her, if you had any idea who I am and you understood how God gives gifts free of charge, you'd be asking me for a free gift and I'd be giving you living water. What she hears is, well, if you really understand, understood that we Jews are the ones who have this figured out, you'd be asking rabbis like me to teach you the right way, the true way to understand the living water. That's a metaphor for the first five books of Moses. Sound to you like the conversation is going well? No, they're, they're talking past each other, and it doesn't help that she responds, I think, sarcastically in verse 11. It's kind of like, oh, well, excuse me, sir. I don't think you realize that the well's deep, and I don't see you carrying a bucket. So where are you going to get this living water from? Because it sounds like you're saying you're even greater than Jacob, and his living water, his teaching was enough for him and all of his sons and his livestock. Are you really going to pull stuff out of our scriptures you think we've never seen there before? So Jesus responds. And again, it, this is such a fascinating conversation because they're speaking at such different levels, like using words that we think make sense but care so much. It's like watching like a British drama. You know, where you're watching, you're like, I think they were being polite to each other, but no, they were fighting. And Jesus responds and says, you know, everyone who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And again, what Jesus says and what she hears are two different things. She's hearing Jesus referring to living water springing up within and giving eternal life. And she thinks what he's talking about is really and truly understanding the books of Moses. Because that's what people mean at this time when they talk about eternal life and living water. They're talking about the teachings of God welling up within and giving life when they're followed, when they're obeyed. So she hears Jesus saying... Again, that he's a rabbi with unique insight into scripture. And what started as a simple request for water has turned into an argument about who really understands the Torah best. His people or her people? Her or some thirsty Jewish rabbi who's just on his way through. She's like, I live here. And you're just walking through. Come on. So once again, she responds, I think, sarcastically. Wow, I sure could use some of that water. 
I never have to come here and get any more of this water. In other words, this conversation's over. <laughs> but Jesus keeps the conversation going and purposely misinterpreting her words to push into her just a little bit more. It's like a, well, gosh, if you're really all that interested, why don't, why don't you go get your husband and bring him back here so we can share with him too? But that hits a little too close to home. It, it pushes into her real pain. And she just responds like, I, I have no husband. And Jesus says, now of, of everything you've said so far, that at least is true. Amen. Amen. Because you've been married five times, haven't you? And the guy you're with now is not your husband. Now, what do you think Jesus meant by those words? What do you think Jesus meant by those words? Because this is the point where it's easiest for us to accidentally read our modern assumptions about how life works into the text. How many of you have heard that, that Jesus is highlighting her sin for her? He's, he's bringing her sin to the surface so that he can deal with it. Uh, that she is... Um, what well, one commentator put it this way, a specimen of matrimonial maladjustment. <laughs> well, let's try to keep in mind some of the cultural realities when we read this part. Who in this culture has the power to divorce? It's not the wife. Husbands have the power to divorce. She has no ability to bring about a series of divorces. And remember, how are women supposed to support themselves financially if they're unmarried and too old to live at home? There's two choices. Sell your body or get married. So why has she had five husbands? Is it because she's a serial adulterer and five men have left her because of her sin? Maybe. But women who have been divorced because of their sexual sins aren't usually chosen for remarriage. They're abandoned and left for destitution or prostitution. And it's their own fault because of what they've done. See, it's much more likely, given the cultural realities at the time, that this woman has suffered incredibly and, and deeply. Five times she's been married only to be abandoned for who knows what reason. I remember in this culture, men could divorce their wives for as little as burning the toast. I mean, you had to have a reason for a divorce, but it didn't take much. <clears throat> five times, we're, we're meeting a woman who five times has thought, now I'm safe and secure and cared for only to be left or bereft as husband after husband has died or left her. And what else is she supposed to do? Would anyone you know want to be the sixth husband in line? She's outlived or been abandoned by five others. That kind of thing sticks to you after a while. You know, there's got to be something wrong with her if God is going to keep punishing her this way by killing off her husbands or making them leave. So the guy she's with now isn't willing to marry her, though 
He'll at least take care of her in exchange for a few favors now and again. At least she's not out on the street, right? Even if technically she is a <clears throat> prostitute with just one client. What would you do if there was no other alternative for taking care of your children? For putting food on the table and a roof over your, your kid's head? So let's, let's be careful not to judge her too harshly, and especially be careful not to ascribe actions to her that aren't possible for her in her culture. She's not a serial adulterer whose sinfulness Jesus is highlighting in a gotcha moment. <clears throat> She's a lonely woman whose life has been incredibly difficult. She's suffered through deep personal loss. She's a woman that the rest of the, the community looks on with a certain amount of judgmentalism mixed with fear. Don't get too close. <clears throat> it might be catching. She's obviously cursed in some way, and, and she's a woman who has had to make moral compromises just to take care of herself and her family. So technically, she's right when she says, I don't have a husband. So I think Jesus with what, what I imagine is a, a, a change of tone into the gentle and the understanding it says, and this is kind of the way the grammar runs in the Greek, it says now, you know, of everything you've said so far, that at least is true. Yeah, you don't have a husband. You, you've had five. And the guy you're with now isn't, he's not willing, he's not interested in tying himself to you like that. So Jesus is not saying to her, ha gotcha, sinner, you fell into my trap. Girl, you need Jesus. He's saying words to her that she has not heard anyone say in a long, Amen. long Amen. time. He's saying the words each and every one of us long to hear. Amen. He's looking at her and saying, I see Amen. you. Amen. I see you. I see your pain. I see your suffering. I see what you've gone through. I see what that's done to you. I see what it's made you do. It says, I see Amen. you. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And the whole tone of the conversation shifts. Suddenly she realizes there really is more to this Jewish rabbi than she thought. And time doesn't permit me to go into the second half of their conversation where she's like, you might be the prophet, the explainer. Can you explain this one, this question we've killed each other over? And Jesus gives an answer and she's like, that wasn't very clear. Um, well, whatever. When the Messiah comes, he'll explain it all. And Jesus says to her, actually, he reveals to her something he never reveals. Amen. Nowhere near this clearly to anyone else. Amen. To a scarred and broken woman, a half-Jew who's been beaten down by life, a, a social outcast longing to be seen and loved by someone, Jesus says, I am. Amen. That one you're looking for, the Messiah, the, in their language, the Taheb, the one who would come and explain everything and make everything make Amen. sense. I am. Amen. Yeah. He never says that back in Israel where they're looking for a Messiah. He says it here in Samaria where they're not even looking for what Jesus is offering. But for someone who has felt abandoned by God, judged and oppressed by God, God has 
come to her. Amen. Amen. And God says to her, I see Amen. you. Amen. So I chose this passage for us to study this, you know, one week break between Advent and New Year for a couple of reasons. One was just to give us a little bit of practice into not reading our own assumptions about how the world works and what time the coffee shop should be open back into stories from the past where they do things differently. The rest of the time, of course, we're, we're studying Acts. Um, and when we study Acts, or, or any book of the Bible for that matter, we have to remember the past is a foreign country and they do things differently there. They have different assumptions about the way life works and what men can do and what women can do. But the main reason I wanted to study this passage with you all this morning is, is because I believe deeply that we need to learn to see ourselves and see others the way Jesus sees Amen. us. Amen. Man, we're so good at, at seeing ourselves through a lens of condemnation, aren't we? I think we read this story like Jesus is laying a trap for this woman. You know, you can catch her in her sin because we're afraid that's what Jesus would do if we were to have a conversation with him. Like every conversation with Jesus would be a minefield because he knows what I've done. And I bet he just can't wait to bring it up. I mean, if I'm disgusted by the things I've done, wouldn't he be too? Amen. Except Jesus, when, when he looks at us, he doesn't just see our sin. He doesn't just see the things that we're ashamed of. He sees us in our entirety. He not only sees our sin, but he sees what we've suffered. He sees through our sin to see what longings have driven us to that sin in the first place. There's a quote I read a couple of years ago that I wasn't able to find again um, so I've probably just totally misunderstood what the guy was saying and remembered it the way I wanted it to, but I'm going to share it anyway. The guy had written, don't give up your sin until you learn what it's trying to teach you. Amen. Which sounds really bad, but what he was trying to get across was this idea that, look, if you keep finding yourself going back to the same thing, the same behavior, the same sin, and you don't know why, don't just brute force your way out of it, figure out why do I keep going there? What am I looking for out of it that I can only find from Jesus? Don't give up your sin until you've learned what it has to teach you. Amen. In other words, what he was saying is learn to see through your sin Amen. to the suffering underneath, to Amen. the longing underneath, to, to the emptiness underneath that is driving you into that sin. It's something that, by and large, most of us are not very good at. We're really good at, uh, well, maybe in ourselves we're really good at seeing, well, the reason I did that was this, but the reason you did it was because you're evil. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm suffering, you're a sinner. Amen. Amen. We're so good at identifying all the things that, that other people are doing wrong. But we have to learn first to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, and then we can see other people the way 
Jesus sees other people. Not just seeing their sin and what they're doing wrong, but seeing through the sin to why they're doing it. Seeing through the sin to the suffering that drives it. Seeing through the sin to the, uh, the longings for love or acceptance or, or transcendence or meaning that drive those longings that drive people into all sorts of half answers and vain attempts to manufacture happiness, peace, security, whatever it is. Imagine how our, our witness for Jesus would be different if instead of telling people, don't you know all the things you're doing are wrong and you need forgiveness? What if instead we told people, I can see the way you're suffering and how you're looking for life in everything but the one who gives forever life. Could I tell you about him? Amen. See, sin will be dealt with. And Jesus is going to deal with it in his own time. In his own way. But not until he's seen through it. To the heart of a beaten down and broken woman. Just coming for a bucket of water. Amen. At noon. On some average day. Because when, when Jesus sees someone. And they see him. He doesn't just see sin that needs forgiveness. He sees the way that everything you've longed for has come up short when you've looked for that fulfillment in places other than him. And when he sees you and you see him, then it finally makes sense. He says, boy, you know, everyone who drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Amen. There won't be anything else you want except what I have for you. There's nothing better. Come to me. So let's pray. Jesus, it is at once both terrifying and incredibly terrifying and amazingly comforting to acknowledge to ourselves that you see us. That you see the depths of who we are. You see everything that drives us. Every way we have gone looking for love in someone, something, some whatever other than you. Jesus, thank you for seeing us. Thank you, Jesus. Because without your vision, with only our own eyes to see ourselves, all we see are dirty and disgusting. <coughs> unworthy creatures, and yet when you look at us, we suddenly realize that we are lovable because you love us. So Father, forgive us when we are not able to see ourselves or see others in the way Jesus sees us and sees them. And help us to be so transformed by Jesus' gaze on us that as we gaze back into his face and see the goodness of what he's done for us, we become more and more like him and can become him to those around us who have never seen him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.